Says, get that India. Big boy. G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of the tip sheet. I'm your host 4020, also known as John. Joining me as always is my good mate 60s. And 60s, you want to tell us what's happening today? Mate, how good is it to be live in Pablo's? Hey, people, we're live. Hey. <laughs> so we, we've got the canned applause out of the way. Um, you want to tell us what's on the agenda today, mate? Oh, we're talking a lot of footy. That's it. it is a- we, very, very soon, we've got uh, Joey Grimer talking to us about all things junior reps, and we have a bit of a chat about a special year in the history of the junior reps back in 2004. Uh, we'll also be talking with uh, Mary Kay, and uh, very famous from uh, women in uh, ladies, ladies who, league. who league. And then later this afternoon, we've got a live guest by the name of Brett Kenny. You might have heard of him. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic to have him join us. Uh, that will be a little bit later after after six o'clock sometime. Now, stay with us. Uh, as I said, this is a, a new adventure for us going live. I've worn my special eels pyjama top today. <laughs> uh, I, but I'm not the only one that's worn an eels pyjama top today. I did see another one floating around. There are literally dozens of them. Dozens yeah. of them, I tell you. <laughs> All right, yeah, so everyone listening in, I uh, hope you have a good time, whether it's on YouTube or if you're here in person. Um, and just bear in mind that uh, post-game today, there is a special sit-down with Mick Cronin right here in Pablo's. Is that right, 60s? Yeah, that's right, with Tim Manor hosting. So one hour after the game concludes, you get back here to Pablo's and we have Mick Cronin as the special guest with Tim Manor and uh, should be good. Uh, this will be the... Hopefully, it's going to be the post-match event venue through all home games this year. Alrighty then, let's get on to the docket because it is action-packed. Like you said, multiple guests, plenty of footy to talk about. Let's kick things off with round one of the NRL. Uh, Parramatta went up to Brisbane, Friday night primetime, and managed to get the bickies. It was a bit of a tight game uh, when all was said and done, but Parramatta 24 defeat the Brisbane Broncos 16. Try scorers for the Eels, Reid Marnie, Quinton Gufferson, Blake Ferguson and Junior Paulo. Mitch Moses was flawless off the kicking tee, four from four. Uh, for the Broncos, David Mee got over early and Xavier Coates had a double. Uh, Jermaine Nasako was two from three as a kicker. Uh, what did you take away from this game, mate? It was that quintessential game of two halves, really. Well, I guess if, as Parramatta supporters, we might have been expecting that it was going to go the game of two halves maybe the other way. So, first of all, I'm quite pleased that it was uh, the second half that we saw some of our better football. But first game of the year, it was... Look, I thought it was going to be a close game anyway, so for the Eels to come away with a win and play some of their better football in the second half, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the season, two points is two points, and that's you know the ultimate lesson from this. But we saw some of the issues of 2020 creep into their football in the first half, but uh, a more tempered Brad Arthur, if the media still believed, in his, post, in his halftime address, saw the boys bounce back and address those issues and rectify them. And we saw off the bench, uh, Oregon Kafusi and especially Isaiah Papali'i really take that game by the scruff of the neck. Well, last year, we got a lot of good punch off the bench in the early part of the season. And as Shelley said in her column on the Cumberland throw during the week, 
that punch sort of fell away during the year. So I think it's it's going to be important to um, have impact middle forwards who are going to keep the momentum going that both Junior Paulo and RCG are able to provide in that first half. So um, a great start from Oregon Kafusi, great start from Isaiah Papali. What a debut. And, of course, we've got Murata Nukore starting this week, so it should be even more punch off the bench. I'm not afraid... I'm not... I'm going to go out on limb. I reckon Parramatta's got a far better bench today than what the Storm has. That's true. Um, and, you know, you need that sort of sort of bench if you're going to uh, go up against the big boys in the competition. You're talking the Roosters, the Storm, uh, the Rabbitohs and the Panthers. And having three really good forwards off the bench would be massive. Um, the other player that really jumped off out of that game for me was Reed Money, And he's a player that we've spoken about trying to develop that attacking uh, repertoire. And against Brisbane, he was everywhere. Was that, the best, was that the best performance that Reed Marnie's had in a Neil's jersey? It'd be right up there. Right what up do we there. think, people? Yes, yes, yep. Yeah. So there was a lot that's going to be expected of Reed Marnie this year. He's got a bit of backup that's happening uh, in the, in the uh, form of um, Joey Lussick and uh, Young Roach. And for the first time, it, it could be that... It's not only that he gets back up on the bench, potentially back up off the bench, and even Will Smith can provide that, but there's a, there's a lot of hype around Nathaniel Roach that he could be something absolutely out of the box. So we were looking for a little bit more from Reed Marnie in attack, and I think you were starting to see evidence of some of the work that he's doing with Joey Johns as well. So if we can continue that sort of form from Reed Marnie, then you've got maybe an extra dimension in Parramatta's attack this year. That's true. All right, that'll probably just wrap us up there for, for the NRL preview. We're going to keep it... Uh, NRL review, sorry. We'll keep it quick this week because it is a, a jam-packed docket. So let's, uh, let's uh, blitz through the junior rep action from the weekend as well. Parramatta Eels going undefeated across the three grades with two wins and a draw. Starting with Natasha Gale, which was a 16-all draw. Uh, Talisha Pugh, Rosalio Cedar-Payne, the captain, and Ruby John Kennard getting over. Summer Terrare was two from three off the boot. Um, that bumps him up from, uh, eighth, uh, into, uh, from ninth into eighth, sorry, and three points behind six. Uh, in the Harold Matthews, the Eels improved to third place on the ladder with a 28-8 victory over the Raiders. Miles Martin, Blaze Talangi, and a hat-trick to Ethan Sanders for the try scorers. And Sanders added to the uh, scoreboard with a four from five effort on the kicking tee. And the big result in the SG ball, the Eels looking to shore up their spot in the top six, taking on the undefeated Canberra Raiders. Uh, won 47-24, to 24, a huge effort, with uh, Peter Tatio, the captain, getting a brace. Sione Tapuosi, uh, Caleb Coronios, Keelan Bray, Drew Lloyd, Josh Tuopolodu, Francis Fayofo Tuatino, and Larry Muagututia. That's a big mouthful of the try scorers list there, getting on the board for the Eels. And it was a rare um, off day off the boot for... Uh, uh, Josh Chapel, who I think he was um, four from nine off the top of my head because I did not write that down like a good host. So uh, massive result. They still stay in six because everyone else won ahead of them except for the Raiders, but they are now only two points behind first. And uh, I could not think of a better person to speak to us about the juniors than Joey. And so welcome Joey Grimer to the tip sheet, mate. Good to have you on board on location. G'day, guys. It's great to be here, particularly live at Paraleagues at our first live game day tip sheet. Um, welcome to everyone here and welcome to the people listening to the podcast. 
All righty, let's get into it, Joey. Um, always a pleasure to have you on, mate. Uh, we always we already spoke about it in brief, but last weekend was huge. A massive road trip to Canberra out at Queanbeyan for all three teams. Uh, we came away with two wins and a draw. Would you say that we met or exceeded expectations? Yeah, I think we exceeded the expectations. We always went up there, or we always go into Canberra, knowing that we're going to have to take on an SG ball side that were undefeated. We were going to um, take on a Harold Matthews side that were playing for their season, as well as a Tasha Gale side that if they lost this game, their season would be gone. So three real desperate age groups. The beauty about us only, or a team travelling to Canberra or Newcastle um, once a season is that you can actually prepare better when you play away because you have your staff purchase your food, you have a stretch, you meet somewhere, somewhere in the, uh, before you get on the bus, you hydrate, um, you stop, you're together for three or four hours. So before the game, that's really good preparation into the game. So whilst we exceeded the, uh, our expectations of how the results were going to go, it was pleasant and uh, everyone enjoyed themselves. Canberra is a real lonely trip when you don't come away with two points, but it was an amazing trip to come home with two and a half wins. So we were um, really excited as a club about those three results. And just on, on that, the first of those games, the Tasha Gale girls, they stormed home late once again. They obviously, they've become like the heartbreak kids, well, the heart <laughs> attack kids, because they have coach Ryan Walker sitting on the edge of his seat coming into the back end of the game. They scored 12 points in the last five minutes. So how do you actually view such late rallies in a, ma in a match, mate? Whilst, you know, um, it's two weeks in a row, 60s, um, we came from behind against Bulldogs last week to close a deficit of 16 points and end up winning 20 to 6, uh, excuse me, 26 to 20. And again, against Canberra, as you said, um, rightly so, we scored two tries in the last five or six minutes. Whilst it's disappointing, you want to be in a position to win the game, it shows a level of resolve and commitment that those girls can come back. They had no right to come back. And if they were not able to beat the Bulldogs and draw with Canberra, we would be none the wiser. The fact that they did two weeks in a row shows that they have respect for each other um, and they've got a bit of resilience about them um, and they didn't want to leave anything to chance and take anything that they could do um, away for them not getting a result. So we're really, really proud of those girls. However, I would like to see if they were uh, like to be in front at half-time. It'd be great for our hearts, <laughs> yeah. and especially Ryan and his staff. <laughs> All right, moving on to the Harold Matthews, Joey. Um, that team continued in their winning ways. They now sit in third place on the ladder, but they can't afford to get too far ahead of themselves, naturally, because um, a couple of losses means that they can slip very far down the ladder very quickly. Um, however, in saying that, uh, there is a natural advantage in sitting into the top two. So uh, how are they sort of uh, travelling at the moment, mate? Yeah, look, we spoke about it last week, Jono. We spoke about um, the maturity level, and they're at a place now where they're starting to play some consistent football. Um, Steve O'Day and the coaching staff have kept their rugby league plan relatively easy, but the way that they're executing and getting to their kick and completing their sets, that's the pleasing thing for, those, for that young group of men. 
And that's the difference between being a top four team in that age competition and a not top four team in that age group. We spoke about young Ethan Sanders, again, scored three tries, kicked them off the park. The challenge for him, he's done that five weeks in a row, and the challenge for him now is to do it six weeks in a row and then seven weeks in a row. So we're just um, um, asking them to do nothing that is outside their skill set, um, but that's the reason why they're becoming more consistent. And with consistency, they're having more confidence, and with more confidence, you're going to get better results. Mm-hmm. But there's a real fine balance when someone tries to solve something on their own or go away from what they've been doing successfully, that's when things start to turn. So um, credit to them. Um, the staff and the players are, all understand what their roles and responsibilities are. Jono? Now, just moving on to the SG ball team, they had an amazing win, and there's probably a lot that we can talk about with the, uh, the, the win that they had and the circumstances that they faced. But leading up to that, the great week of preparation was recorded by your strength and conditioning coach, Neil Dunkley, and that video has been shared on the Cumberland Throw. It's also been shared through our social media. Has anyone here been able to watch that uh, video of the SG Ball's preparation this week? I mean, how great was that to be able to see what they went through in, the, in their preparations? Um, can you talk us through how that came about, Joey? Neil's a perfectionist, as most of our staff in our junior rep program, and we touched on it two weeks ago about the level of commitment and professionalism that is expected at this club. With respect to other trainers at other clubs, Neil Dunkley is uh, more qualified than the role that he's undertaking at the moment at Parramatta. So we're really blessed to have someone of that talent involved with our elite 18 and 19 year olds. It came about because it just, he just wanted to share with a group of people, his staff, his friends, the players, about what a week takes, what a week, what, what, what do we do in a week? Because it's often because it comes, becomes such a routine, 60s, they know they train Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they turn up at this time and this time. But until you reflect on it, you don't actually understand the effort and the programming savvy that goes into by the staff and followed by the players. So it gives you a visual indication of how hard you are working and what you do behind the scenes in order to get your body ready to play that weekend. Can I just ask too, because we've got Brett Kenny on uh, later today and back in the day, they'd train, what, Tuesday, Thursday, they might have a run on a Saturday morning. Is it fair to say that the amount of training that's and the preparation that goes into junior reps these days would equate to what the first grade footballer would have gone through in days gone by? I think the actual training would rival an NRL team or a first grade team of the 80s. However, with respect to those teams, again, I don't think the level of analytical vision um, would be less than what they're doing now in our Harold Matthews and SG Ball program. On top of what they physically do in the gym or on the field, the amount of intel that our coaches are getting, the amount of statistical data that they're being shared within the staff, um, we, we would have more access to um, data or footage and statistical information than what 
previous first grade sides have done in the in the eighties, and Brett Kenny would be, you know, that era, and that just gives you an understanding of how good players, players, and people like Brett Kenny were. Imagine if they had the access to resources that players have today, how yeah. good they would have been. But it's all relevant to the times. Um, but we're, we're really blessed with the, our, our S&C staff and our coaching staff because the expectation on them are set more at a higher level than other clubs. So anyone that hasn't had a chance to have a look at that footage that we've got on the post, we've got it as the uh, junior reps a week in the life, just go to the Cumberland Throw and you'll be able to access that footage. It's interesting to point out too, 60s, is that you've got a squad of 25 players. The trainer and the coach needs to be across the three cross-sections. And the three cross-sections are the players that played on a Saturday, they would have an alternate or a different training program than the players that played on a Saturday that played less than half a game. The conditioner would have to alter the training session to top those players that didn't play for more than 30 minutes to accommodate their fitness level to the same level of the players that would have played the whole game. Then you've got players that weren't selected or players returning back from injury. So there has to be a rehab program that the trainers have to follow in order to get those players back on the track. And the last one is, is that there are players that weren't selected, that are not injured, and their level of training would be incredibly different to every other group. So for an elite programs pathway system for our females, males, 17s and 19s, to ask someone at that level to have four three or four different training programs and the coach have different coaching programs, not just on one day, but every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, that gives you a level of understanding commitment because it's something that you just can't foster the day or an hour before training. There's a lot of planning that goes into that. It's literally like a teacher who has to cater for all the levels of kids in a classroom and all their levels of learning is that the coach is co catering for all the levels of the players within that week. The only difference between them, they're both teachers, the only difference is the teacher earns a lot, lot more money than what our <laughs> development coaches do. Yeah. But in it's essence... A, it's a passion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a guys. passion. Yeah. In essence, um, the coaches, the trainers, they're somewhat teachers without a degree, yeah. a teacher's degree. Yeah. All right, let's keep it on with the SG ball. Um, they've banked that big win over the Raiders, which puts them now just two points behind first and second place but they're still in a precarious position in sixth place themselves. We speak about with other teams trying to put bad losses behind you, but equally so, do they have to try and put the good win behind them and sort of refocus on the competition moving forwards? They do, and um, at training last night, I witnessed, um, and it was actually led by Peter Tateo, who's been an amazing leader out of that group. He challenged the players on two or three occasions when they were moving from drill to drill. He brought them all in before they went to their next activity and he said, no complacency. That was the key. Because the only thing that will stop the SG Ball team from making the top six is complacency. 
So that's been identified by the staff. Steve O'Day and his staff already spoke about having respect for the opposition. We, we, we briefly touched on that last week in your podcast. However, with the Tasha Gale, they have to leave nothing left yeah, in the tank. It's win out it's, for them, it's isn't win, it? It's win or, or they don't make the finals. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a real good point that you touch on because, um, yeah, if, if, if they go in with a level of complacency and a lack of respect for the Sharks, the Roosters, the Victorian Thunderbolts and so forth, the SG ball, that is, um, they'll miss out. Now, uh, speaking on the Sharks, we were going to do a preview of the action this weekend, but as we've just found out, uh, given the rather heavy inclement weather that's over Sydney, uh, the junior reps for the Eels has been postponed or cancelled? No, it's been postponed. The way that it's worded in the email from New South Wales Rugby League, we currently have nine rounds. Round seven has been officially postponed. That will be pushed back. If you can imagine, that'll be round 10. Okay. So we'll continue to have round eight, continue to have round nine. And then bounce back to And then one. it will go to the lost game in round seven and push back the semifinals, quarterfi- quarterfinal, semifinal, grand final Correct. one there, week. There's three weeks of finals yep. in this yep. format. Yeah. Now, um, we're going to have a bit of a flashback. Yeah. Blast in the past for Joey. This is... Anyone that's not familiar with this, this is actually quite amazing. Back in 2004, Joey Grimer coached an Eels Harold Matthews team to the Premiership and at his disposal was quite an amazing group of players. Joey, can you just run through some of the players that were in your squad in 2004? Yeah, it was a a special squad. They don't come around too often, and I was very humbled to be the head coach of that squad. Um, We were lucky, 60s. We had uh, nine first graders come from that age group in 2004, those young young 15 and 16-year-olds. Out of that group, there were two internationals and five state-of-origin players. So players like a very young and dynamic Jared Hayne. And the speculation and the talk about Joseph Sawali reminds me a lot about when Jared Hayne was coming through. Um, A lot of people that saw Jared come through said there's a lot of similar traits between Joey Sawali and and Jared Hayne. So that him as our fullback um, was incredible just to see someone with so much balance and grace Um, but we still had to remember he was only 15 years of age we had uh, Tony Williams who played on the right wing at T-Rex T-Rex it wasn't fair playing him on the wing so I ended up putting him in in the back row Um, but he played on the wing in the centres we had uh, Tilima Tautai who played a lot at, at, at our club here at Parramatta and was very successful and won um, Super League Grand Final for Wigan. He m- became a middle forward, didn't middle he? Middle forward, yep. yep. So we went from centre to back row to middle forward. The Ruben um, Wiki special. Yes, uh, he's a yeah, Ruben Wiki special, all right. In the halves, we were blessed. We had uh, Christopher Keating at 5'8", and arguably, I've been around junior reps for 29 years, the most talented 15-year-old I've ever seen at any club in that program. He's halfback 
partner was uh, Trent Hodgkinson. This is amazing. Like, just listening to all these names in the, in the one Harold Matz team. Um, and we were blessed in the forward pack. We had uh, Timmy Manor as our front rower. Tim, Tim Robson, her Chad's uh, younger brother, who played for uh, Manly, played uh, a bit for the Roosters. Um, now he's playing locally for Hills District. And we had a, a, um, a young fellow called uh, Blake Lazarus who uh, played three or four games for West's Tigers. So n- nine first graders from that side. Um, really humbled, really blessed. Um, but it didn't, coaching that side didn't come with its, without its challenges. And speaking of coaching that side, I, I do want you to walk us through that because it's a team of superstars on that level and quite a few of those go through to being superstars at the highest levels. But we've seen the tape and we, we, we can see that they actually weren't, you know, just pass it to the best player. They're actually quite well drilled and well coached. So this is your chance to give yourself a pat on the back, mate, and also maybe talk about the challenges of coaching that team. The major challenge, Jono, for coaching that particular team, I'll, I'll go back... I'll talk about something else, and I always say this to my coaches and the staff at our, our place at Parramatta, and it's, it's always been like this. Clubs that play against Parramatta, their level of their success can be gauged by how well or how poor they play against Parramatta. They're like a litmus test in that grade. Unbelievable. Everyone wants to challenge Parramatta, and somewhat Penrith, because... Arguably, they've got best junior districts, um, best junior programs, and history shows that they have a lot of success. So someone's season, a team's season, could be justified by how well they play against us. Not only is that a factor, having a team with such players, the opposition only wanted to get up just for that game against Parramatta. So they played their grand final against Parramatta. We played nine grand finals every week before we got to our grand final. The level of lift by the opposition, sometimes we, you know, we done a good job on them and blew them off the park, but we never went into a game um, knowing that it was just going to be a win because we knew the expectations against us. We knew what the opposition wanted. We knew what the opposition coaches were telling their players. Not only do players lift when they play Parramatta and the juniors, but particularly with this one. And that was our biggest challenge, keeping them grounded, but not letting them become complacent. So we had to set rules around that. We were very, very strict because we knew if we gave them an inch, as they say, they would have taken a mile. Mm -hmm. We had more rules with that age group than what we've had before because we needed to keep them grounded, but we needed to keep them real to what they needed to do to win. Their ability alone would have got them across the line, but it was more than that. Jono, it was more than that. We had to make sure that we had 17 or we had 22 players in that squad And we had to make sure they all contributed equally in a way that wouldn't remove or take away anything away from any other player. And that's what you're talking about in that video. The highlights that you saw from that um, DVD that I gave you just showed um, players that came off the bench, their contribution would be greater, if not 
similar to what the uh, strike players, the Jared Haynes, the, the Chris Keatings, they were challenged and we had uh, parameters and rules and skills metrics that they had to achieve. That side was uh, way mature, uh, way, their maturity was greater than any other 15-year-old age group side. And that's probably why um, they were the team and the players that came through that squad. And, and just to that, um, Joey mentioned just then that we were able to see a video package of the season highlights uh, that was put together way back in the day when it, when it actually, uh, during 2004. The thing that stood out that uh, Joey just mentioned was the number of players who excelled beyond the players who, were, uh, the, who became name players. And I think that's pretty much what you're alluding to there as well. But as, as I was watching it, I, I was sending messages to Joey like, you know, who, who's, who's player 14, player number 14? Who's, who's the fellow with the cornrows? Just to find out who some of these players were, because I figured, well, I, I don't remember them playing with Parramatta, but surely they kicked on as well, and, and for different reasons they didn't. But I am still going to come back to some highlights, because just I, I think people could probably picture this. There's a slew of Jared Hayne tries that are on that highlight reel, but the one that stood out for me was against... Uh, the Tigers at Leichhardt Oval. There's a grubber kick that's put towards the corner post. Jared Hayne, as this is him as a 15-year-old, goes sliding over into the corner. He's on his knees. He picks up the ball. He jumps to his feet. He evades the first couple of chases, and he runs 100 metres for the try. Now, we saw highlights like that in his NRL career. He was doing that as a 15-year-old playing junior reps. It was amazing stuff. He was amazing. Um, arguably the worst trainer that's ever played first grade. <laughs> I, I would have hated to see if he actually got fit at that age group. Um, yeah, he was, uh, he was a horrendous trainer. But I was very fortunate, 60s, that that age group, I had in their Harold Matthews, in their SG ball, and leading into the old Jersey Fleck under-19s program. So... To have that group of men for four or five years, it was a real honour. And hopefully what me and my staff and challenging them, challenging them um, made them, all contributed to them being the player that they are today. You've uh, seen a lot of young talent, obviously. Uh, but in regards to that 2004 squad, uh, did you know at any point that, that like, a given player would be a first grader? Um, and what about a star player or a, a sort of first-grade potential player? What makes you realise that they will realise their own potential? That was relatively early in my coaching career. I'd been coaching for about three or four years at the elite level. And I always felt that whilst I've seen a lot of gifted footballers at 15, 14, 15, at that age group, that didn't necessarily make them um, NRL players. Mm -hmm. And that probably gives more clarity to how good these players were in this squad. History shows that not many players are successful being the best 14 and 15 year olds. History shows that. So to see them at that age be so far more dominant than any other team allowed me to believe that I had some elite players. 
Whether they would have played first grade or not, I was probably too early on in my career to identify that, but we knew we had some gifted players. As I stayed with them for three and four years, in 2006, Jared Hayne was a 17-year-old. Actually, he might have turned 18. It was 2007, excuse me. He made three Australian sides that year. He made the Australian schoolboys, the junior kangaroos, and the Prime Minister's 13 as an 18-year-old. Then I knew he was going to be something special. <laughs> that's, that's a good um, answer. Right. And, you know, with Jared, um, I didn't know if his ability was going to take him so far, given that he wasn't the most diligent trainer. Mm -hmm. He'd done everything you asked of him. There was never a problem with that. Just where he finished... For someone that ran two and four hundreds, you know, at a state level, at a very, very quick pace, he didn't do him particularly well at training. So um, He was a gamer, not a trainer. Yeah, yeah. he was a gamer and a not a trainer, absolutely. So whilst I thought they were pretty special, I didn't realise till about uh, 2006, 2007 that we had some really special people here at our club. Now I'm going to make this a bit of a double barrel question. But firstly, is there a rough percentage of junior rep players that go on to, be, to play a single NRL game? And secondly, and I, I, we do already sort of know the answer to this, is that type of percentage communicated to the players who are in our programs? The first part is, it's a, two, it's a two-pronged double-barrel question. I'll answer the first part. Traditionally, up until... Seven or eight years ago, Harold Matthews was of the 15 age group. If you ask me that same question then, less than 1%, 1 in 100 Harold Matthews players would make first grade. Fast forward to 2020, 21, 22, the Harold Matthews age group is 17. So that two-year age gap, we won't know the evidence until another five or six years, but we know that that um, percentage is going to be much greater than 1%. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, going back to when I played Harold Matthews and coached Harold Matthews, one in 100. And we had nine out of that team. Shows you how hard the path to being a pro footballer is. Unbelievable. Yeah. So that gives you the first part to the question. If you could just remind me what the second part is. The second part is, I suppose it's basically communicating to the, to the players <laughs> about having a plan B. Like, is it communicated to them just how tough it's going to be for them to have a career in the NRL? We've had, um, uh, over the last 12 months and two years, uh, before every player commences training within our elite program, 60s, we invite them in to an information session. At that information session, David Gower, who uh, is led by Dean Feeney in the welfare space, deliver a, a five, ten minute introduction to all the young men and young women that are in our programs, from our under-14s development squad, 15s, Harold Matthews Cup, SG Ball and Tasha Gale. He outlines the difficulties of becoming a full-time rugby league player because of a number of things. His delivery explains why most players don't make it and gives 
them a thought process to think of when you come into our joint at Parramatta. Not only do you need to have a plan A, but you need to have a plan A. He doesn't call it a plan B. He calls it a plan A, to have a plan A. But to answer your question, 60s, absolutely. He, he recognises and spoke to the, the parents were there with the younger kids, explained to them that not many are going to make it in this room. So they need to be aware that the education programs that we run to ensure that their mental well-being is achieved or at a good level. So not necessarily done by myself or the coaching staff, but it's certainly done by our welfare and um, education team. And I think that's probably just as much an important message for the parents, I imagine, as it would be for the kids. Well, we've all seen it at football games. We've all seen it at sport games. There are kids out there that are playing for their parents. The way that their parents react and, and you know, react about how they play. The parents are really important in getting the right information. We yeah. can now coming across 60s, 14-year-olds that haven't made a representative program sign player managers, player agents, which meant that the law had to be changed. The New South Wales NRL changed the law to 15 and 16. So that's where our game's going. And it's not the child that makes that decision of 14 to have a player agent. It's mum and dad the and the parents. So it's really important to engage with them, to uh, express to them, you know, them as parents, what is the realistic, what, what is reality? How many are you going to make it? How many are not? And these are the reasons why. So it's really important. And, and Dean Feeney, Dave Gower, our wellness our staff there are really proactive in that space, making sure that the parents, particularly um, um, we started a program this year, it's called uh, Daranoa, with Pacific Island, uh, the, the um, um, Pacific nations, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, um, Papua New Guinea. Talanoa is a conversation between Indigenous uh, Polynesian families or Polynesian people. So George, our pastor, who also works with the Polynesians, organised all the um, Pacific Islanders and trying to engage in their parents to come in so they can have a Talanoa because a lot of the pressures on these kids come from their parents. Some of that is cultural, some of that is just generic expectation. That's an excellent answer, Joey. Now, we couldn't let you go off at least one big money coaching question for the NRL. Um, we already quickly reflected on round one action and we decided that it was a pretty ordinary first half followed by a, a pretty good second half. Now, as a coach, how do you focus on the the sort of the fallout of that match? Do you look at the good, the bad, or some sort of balance of the two? Yeah, look, um, the first half, you don't have to look far to understand why. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. It was pretty, it, it was, yeah, it wasn't a first grade standard, particularly no. standards of Brad Arthur and his staff set. Mm -hmm. To have 13 errors in the game, and majority of those 11 errors in the first half, um, I don't, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that, hey, that's your problem right there. And I'm sure uh, Brad and his staff would have identified that to a lesser extent. He wouldn't have harped on it, but they would have known. You, you know when they drop the ball 11 times in one half of football, you're not going to be in front on the scoreboard. Yeah. 
So um, um, that's one area that um, Brad would have spoken to the team about. The other area um, that um, is a big, big area that we need to win today, particularly in this rain, is the kicking game. We spoke briefly about what is a high finish and a low finish. We have number of kicks that we execute from various plays on the field, and we rate those kicks as of what are the right kicks and what execution. So they get a score. Now they're either deemed to be high or low. We need to be, every kick needs to be a high, or we need to be above 90% in our high finishes. The kicking game is paramount today. Um, similar to the Dragons and Cronulla game. They scored all their tries basically from kicks. So it's, it's massive today. So that's one area where Joey's been working with um, the staff and Brad's come up with a kick plan. And I, the other area, I think, watching Melbourne Storm, I reckon they can have a bit of value. I hope George Jennings doesn't listen to this because I like George. He's a good fellow. But I reckon if they target George and... Tar um, Target Smith and Jennings on that edge, they might get a bit of value. The Rabbitohs certainly look to have some and success yeah, against that edge. I watched that game twice, and I, you know, I know Brad uh, and his staff would have watched that too. So I think that um, you don't have to dwell too much on what went wrong in that first half last week. Um, I'm sure Sh Sean Lane would have known that he had an off night with his hands and didn't need to be reminded, and he'll come back better from that tonight. So, just on what you were talking about then, with the, with the kicking game, it's, it wouldn't just be the, the kick itself. You, you're also including the kick chase. Would that be right absolutely. in the rating it? Yeah, absolutely. The kick chase, and depending where you are in the field 60s, there are limited kicks that you can kick. So, you rely on your kick chase. When you're 40 metres out, you kick high into the corners... You kick it high to allow your defenders to get that one line and make that tackle as close as you can to the try line. So it's not about how high or how long the kick goes, but where your defence makes that tackle. So absolutely. And um, if you have one person not on song tonight against Pappenhausen in this wet ground, and Josh that's all he too. needs. Yep, those two, one person. Those two are so fast. Yep. So it's, it's massive. The kick chase... I mean, when, when you played under sevens, how many times did your coach say the kick is only as good as its chase? It's and a, it couldn't it's be a, any, any, any more true. Truism for a reason, mate. Uh, kick to the seagulls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, didn't get that one. I, I come from Tamworth. We didn't have seagulls. That, no, we, had a, we had magpies and galahs. Yep. That, that's a famous Jack Gibson, Jack Gibson advice to Peter Sterling, kick to the seagulls. Kick where, kick where the players aren't. It, I actually borrowed that coaching kids... With, uh, with, with schoolboy football, with um, the dummy half to look up and see where the players weren't and to pass the ball in the direction where the players weren't. So they were passed to the seagulls. Uh, now, just, just one last thing, Joey. Um, besides the, um, the kicking game and, uh, and, and maybe looking at a few areas where we've got an advantage over the storm, what is it in your opinion, that the storm just does spectacularly well that we're going to have to be at our best to deal with? They don't believe they can't win from any position on the field, whether, and I mean that in a point sense, they just don't have a lack of belief that they're not going to win the game. They just believe that if they're 
12 nil up at half time, they're going to win. If they're 12 nil down 10 minutes into the game, they're going to win. If they're 12, minutes to, uh, 12 points down with eight minutes to go, they're going to win. It's their belief. It's their belief in every player doing their job to win that next momentum set. That's what they do well better than everyone else. Just their level of confidence. And you get confidence from winning. You get confidence from um, 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 being able to get out of situations. And they've been doing that for 10, 15 years. It, it's a culture for a reason, it, isn't it? That's, yeah. It's a culture. Yes, it is. Jono? Well, mate, thank you so much for joining us as usual. Um, we do, unfortunately, we did have the wet weathers played havoc with the games this week, so we've got the junior reps cancelled. And we got, we got some so other information too to go through on the previous. We, we, were, due, we were due out at uh, Shark Park or whatever it, name it goes by these days, but Points Bet Stadium. So that's been cancelled, but hopefully the weather uh, picks up a bit better next week and we'll be back on track for round eight of the junior rep. So thanks again for joining us, Joey. Thanks, guys. It's great. Thanks for everyone being here. And, um, yeah, really loved it. Really loved this uh, episode. And I hope, uh, I hope uh, Mary Kay doesn't do too well because I mightn't be back next week. <laughs> a bit of friendly rubber there from Joey. Thanks, mate. All right, bear with us, everyone, as we have a, a bit of a, a swap around of seats here with Mary Kay joining the panel. Um, but I'll just run you through some quick news that's come out now for the Jersey flag and the Canterbury, oh, so it was the Canterbury Cup, but now the New South Wales Cup. Uh, with the, the junior reps were cancelled and now we've had the relocation of the two senior grades, Jersey flag versus St George Elora Dragons will now be held at McCready Park on one o'clock on Saturday. And the New South Wales Cup fixture versus the Canberra Raiders will also be at McCready Park at 4pm. So they're both scheduled to be at Ringrose Park as home games for the Eels. With the senior game there, the New South Wales Cup was going to be streamed on Facebook by NSWRL TV. I don't know if that's been impacted by the change in scheduling. So just uh, stay tuned on their uh, channels to find out about that. Alrighty, Mary. Good to have you on board. Thank you so much for having me. I know I said 4.45, That's so I feel fine. like I'm right on time. You are I think you're perfect. The Absolutely weather, perfect. The weather's dismal out there. It's so unfortunate for our first home game of the season, isn't it? It certainly turned on the opposite of a good show, didn't it? It's very grey, very dreary, uh, very, very tough conditions for football. Alrighty, so Mary's going to help us go through these previews very quickly before we talk, uh, talk some more general footy with her. Um, so, like I said before, junior reps are off this week. They're going to be rescheduled to an extra round of football. So, nine weeks of regulation football becomes ten, with this round slotting in that tenth week. Um, so, this was going to be an away triple header against the Sharks, and that'll now be in a few weeks' time. So, going on to that Jersey flag game, and the Eels named a, a team that's uh, probably bereft of a lot of stars in the flag because they're playing up in the New South Wales Cup. But we've got the likes of Sam Loizu, Matt Komalafi, and Itasi James leading a pretty young team. Uh, what are we expecting out of him this week, 60s? Uh, look, I think one of the beauties about this is that it's like a... Even though it's round two, it is like a round one game. I don't know that I have any expectations for them, mm -hmm. to be honest. It's, it's a... Um, uh, as I said, they, they, they're not going in with any form. Their trials were pretty average, to be honest. But, as you say, there's reinforcements there... Um, with um, players who will bring a bit of class and a bit of an edge, but how they gel together, I, I guess we're, we're really going to be um, wise to the event after we actually get to see it. 
Yeah, I think the, the flag this year, and we've spoken about it earlier in other episodes, um, we're looking at these two grades, the flag and the New South Wales Cup, as uh, very heavy vehicles for development this year. They're prioritising getting these blue-chip young kids ready for their NRL debuts down the track. And so that's probably going to be reflective in some more tough results along the way, but that journey will be important for the development. But I actually, I, I think that once they start to get a bit, of, a bit more time together that the performances will be... It'll be reflected in the performances. I do expect them to be a top-eight team, uh, much the same as I expect that the New South Wales Cup, even though they had a really, really ordinary game against Penrith... It was pretty dusty. (laughs) Look, let's be honest, Penrith just tore them to pieces. But I do expect, again, that once they start to gel as a team that it's going to be reflected in the performances. And again, I'm expecting them to be a top eight team. Um, All I can say is uh, as long as uh, the games aren't impacted by uh, weather cancellation, get out to Ringrose Park on Saturday. McCready, McCready now. Oh, sorry, McCready now. Yeah, both both games have been relocated to McCready. 1pm for Flegg, 4pm for New South Wales Cup. uh, This is, is what, about third change of the venue? It's... uh, it's been a rough week for football uh, logistics. Well, we got, we got, do you have another update, Joey? Is there something else happening? Sorry, guys. We, we are literally getting... We, sorry. We, is it McCready? Okay, so we can confirm it is McCready, and we believe it is 1pm, 4pm. So there, there's a big gap between games. We're not really sure why, but that's what we've been told. So thanks for that, Joey. Uh, and I'd probably say stand by for any yeah. further announcements so with that, because keep jumping with the, on with the weather and the grounds and... Yeah, they'll obviously want to get it underway, but um, there could be last-minute changes, so just stand by on that. All righty, Mary, we'll get you involved on this next one with the New South Wales Cup. Um, this is a very young team, and I'm just looking at the key inclusions for the Eels, and it's the likes of Sean Russell, Solomone Naiduki, Will Penasini, who's gotten a lot of press lately, uh, Jacob Arthur, who most people would know as the son of Brad, Dave Hollis and Charbel Tassipali. But there's some other great players there uh, around, and we've got the likes of uh, Jordan Rankins leading the team at captain, and then you've got uh, Tim Laffey in the back line give, uh, giving a bit of experience as a uh, outside-the-top-30 player is what, what I was trying to get to. Um, what do you look forward to in this team? I'm really excited about seeing more from Will Panasini. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a player that I know has tremendous wraps on him. We probably won't see him in first grade this year, but he's a player that I'm really excited about watching develop this year. And similar with Jacob Arthur, I mean, he is also a player that has wraps on him, probably still too young and needs some more experience especially in a position like halfback that is absolutely so fundamental. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they can bring to this contest. And they, they're up against a pretty tough first-start opposition. The Canberra Raiders are no mugs. I'm looking at their team list and the likes of Caleb Akins, who's come over from Penrith, um, Semi Valemi on one wing, and you've got a big front row featuring Corey Horsburgh, Tom Starling, who was dynamite last year, and then Emre Gula. So it's a pretty tough first-start opposition. I think this demonstrates why I think the Canberra Raiders are such a threat this year in that they have such tremendous depth. Like, if you look at names like Corey Horsburgh, Tom Starling, it still baffles me that he's not in Canberra's top 17 and playing every week. It's going to be a really tough game because Canberra, I think, have amongst the best depth in the competition. And I think it also speaks to the youth policy that's happening at Parramatta at the moment, that uh, not only do we have young players, but they are young players that have been elevated up to New South Wales Cup level with a, with a view to the future. So, uh, yeah, it's a contest of a bit more experience versus the youth. Um, 
whatever happens, as I said to, to me it, with the buy last week for them, this is around virtually around one clash. So whatever happens, it's going to be um, they'll be better for the better for the run. Yeah, and like we said, this is very much a development vehicle for these kids. But there is still some very good first grade talent sprinkled across the team. Tim Lafay is no mug. He's a good pickup for the club. Um, you've got, uh, as we spoke about, Jordan Rankins helping Jacob Afra in the halves. And you've got the likes of, in the back row, Ray Stone and Kicking Hipgrave, alongside Makahesi Makatoa, who is a very solid New South Wales Cup player. So this will be a good first hit out for them, coming off that round one by, like you said, 60s. Um, if they can get the bickies, I'll be very happy. Alrighty, so as I said, this game is meant to be streamed on uh, New South Wales Rugby League TV, which you can get on Facebook Live. But with the change of venues, I don't know what that means. Uh, so just keep uh, a tab on their notifications to see where they're at with that one. The only other thing I'll say about that game is just how important it is to have this competition. Given COVID last yeah. year, a lot of these young men would have missed out on a year of development. So it'll be good to see them back in action. And crucial development, I think, for hopefully their inclusion in the first grade squad at some point. That's an outstanding point, Mary. Yeah, Every team was impacted massively by the lack of a reserve grade last year. And I think especially the Eels where... Uh, we sort of ran out of steam because we couldn't have the, both the internal scrimmages and also just guys coming up from you know, playing football ready to plug gaps. So very happy to have the uh, New South Wales Cup back in its current iteration. Let's get on to the main event now. Uh, the NRL tonight at 8.10, I believe it is. The first night kickoff is very late. Um, Melbourne Storm coming to town. Their team list reads as uh, Ryan Pappenhusen at fullback. You've got George Jennings and uh, Josh Adokar on the flanks. Ramus Smith and Justin Olam in the centres. In the halves, there's Jerome Hughes and, uh, and Cameron Munster, always a danger there. Front row is very experienced with Jesse Bromwich, Brandon Smith and Christian Welch. And in the back row, they've got Felice Cafusi, Kenneth Bromwich and Big Nelson and Sophie Solomona as their starting 13. Their bench reads as Tyson Smoothie, Tui Kamikamika, Tom Eisenhugh and Chris Lewis with their extra 18th and 19th men being Nico Hines and Darren Shonick. So who jumps out of that team with you guys? Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are the reigning premiers. They did lose Cameron Smith, but they still find ways to win. So, The thing about losing Cameron Smith and the thing that I find incredible about the Storm is that for years people have sort of written them off because they've lost players. Like They lost Cooper Cronk, we'll write them off. They lost Billy Slater, we'll write them off. But as long as Craig Bellamy is leading this team, I don't think he can write them off. And just on that hooker position, like I honestly don't know how they do it. They've lost Cameron Smith. The replacement for Cameron Smith is Harry Grant, who is one of the most exciting young prospects in the competition. He's out. They've still got a great player in Brandon Smith playing in that position. He's, he's all right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do they do it? It's called being the premiers, I guess. Yeah, and, and yeah. the outstanding systems they have in talent development and talent identification. So Yeah, yeah. It, it's, look, it's, it's hard to find a weakness at all within that Melbourne team. Um, we were just talking to Joey about the, the absolute basics that Paramount have to do well and, and the kick, the kick chase. That's going to be a key, a key part to, um, to our victory. And I'm going to say our victory. <laughs> um, so just, let's just go back a week now, Mary. This is, it might be a little bit painful, but, but let's, go, let's go back to that first half last week. Um, can you talk us through your emotions watching the opening 40 minutes? How honest am I supposed to be amongst friends here? Very honest? Look, yeah, it's you, we're just amongst close friends here, so, yeah, be as honest as you, as you need to be. <laughs> Look, I have to be honest, I was pretty 
frustrated with that first half. Let, let's leave it at frustrated. I'm a very, very passionate fan. I ride the highs and the lows of this team. And I suppose after so many months off from footy, I was expecting a little bit more in that first half. Truth be told, at the end of the first half, I got so cranky and said, I'm not watching this anymore, and went into my room and read a book with the door open so I could still hear the commentary. And then, of course, Parramatta started fighting back, and I was like, well, what do I do now? Do I stay in my room or do I come out? So I didn't actually watch the second half because I'm very superstitious, and, of course, it was all my fault. So I stayed in my room. So I'm actually kind of worried about being here tonight. I don't know what it's going to do to the team. Well, look, I, I, I'm superstitious as well, which is one of the reasons for my halftime tweet where I... Look, I, I try to stay off social media during the game because I normally end up looking like an idiot. If I'm boasting about a great performance in the first half, things fall apart in the second. If I'm critical of a performance in the first half, well, there's a chance... There's a chance that things will come good. And I'm proud to say that I was critical at halftime, so I am actually responsible for the victory. That, I'm going to take that. So it's not my fault. Okay, no, it's so not. I can, great. That's, that's really good. Great. <laughs> <laughs> the, crowd, the crowd having their way of uh, 60s there. So, look, my, my first reaction after the game was typical para. to put us through the ringer with a game like that. But then I thought, actually, no, it's not typical Parramatta because typical Parramatta in our heartbreak sides would be to have our hopes up at halftime and then have the hopes dashed. I mean, that's... Look, I mean, that's, that's probably the negative... That's probably the negative thinking aspect of it as a Parramatta supporter to feel, oh, they're going to let us down, they're going to let us down. But, in fact, I think it's a good pointer that this first half was so awful... And we found a way to come back when the first half was so awful. And we did it in quite a composed manner when all was said and done. And even at the end of the game, that the championship minutes, Mitch Moses was finding the exact type of game that we needed him to find in that last 10, 15 minutes of the game. It's such a great point because I feel like for so long, one of the criticisms of Parramatta have been that we don't know how to finish off a performance or we're from behind and we don't know how to win and play composed, smart football. The fact that we were so many points down and were able to come out for that final 40 minutes and fight our way back into the contest and then finish it off was really positive. Yeah, that, and I think what really spoke to that was that the kick and the kick chase when the, the ball was kicked into the end goal and the players got down there on a great kick chase, forced the line drop out, and that basically wrapped up the win uh, because we scored just after that. So, um, yeah, really positive, good game management at the end, exactly what you want to see from your halfback. Yes, you might want to see it for a bit longer in the game, but I'll tell you what, I'd much rather see it at the time when it really, really counts than, you know, just splashes of it throughout the game. Let's also start tonight as we finished last week. Yeah. So let's continue that. Exactly, Mary. Um, with an eye on tonight, but looking at the past as well, Parramatta's record against the Storm over the years is 24 Storm victories to Parramatta's 14. It might surprise everyone listening, but the Dogs actually have the best record against Melbourne at 21 apiece, while the Roosters and Manly are only actually slightly better than Parramatta, which is a bit of a surprise. Um, but it's hard to sort of draw back and think on any like noticeable wins against the Storm because that's the nature of how they beat you. They're so comprehensive. Do you have any happy memories against Melbourne? 
I have one, and it's actually really funny that the weather is the way that it is because the weather was the same on this night back in 2010. 2010. The weather was so bad, in fact, that I remember driving here early and having a change of clothes and towels in my car because I thought this is going to be really, really wet and stormy. And I'm thinking it's 2010 because it was the year after the salary cap news broke for the storm. We played them shortly after the actual entire thing had broken and it was a very spiteful game. It was the first time we'd played Melbourne since that news Mm -hmm. had been announced and Parramatta won that game and I remember being sort of towards the hill end of Parramatta with this group of really, really vocal fans. I think we were all waving wooden spoons. I was perhaps a bit more childish in those (laughs) days but that is the only time really that I've got a happy memory against Melbourne. I mean we did beat them last year but I don't count it as much because that was during the origin period and the storm really fronted what was a very, very young and inexperienced team. But the 2010, I remember it, and it was a very wet and gloomy night. Now, just on to tonight, we are at home, so that's a big advantage. And um, one stat which I just had handed to me was that our win record away from home in, the, in, in recent times is something like 20%. So for, for us to come from behind last week with such a poor record was, uh, was a great turnaround on, on our, our past performances. And I have to say, really this year for Parramatta, I think it is so fundamental that we start the season well because if you look at rounds sort of 18 to the end of the year... It's a punishing run home. It's a punishing run home if what happens with the season goes to plan. So the teams that we're sort of expecting to sit in the top five, we're playing them towards the back end of the year, all in a string. So it's a horrible run home. So the more wins that we can get early, it's always for the better, but particularly this year. Now, I want to actually go away from Parramatta at the moment, and this is probably something that everyone's got a, an opinion on. Uh, during uh, the last week, on your Ladies Who League website, you wrote a great article about Joseph Sawali and the exemption that's been granted to Joseph Sawali. Um, can you give us a bit of a pricey on, um, on what you wrote about uh, in that piece? I sure can. So I think I'll start off by saying I don't have a problem with the Sydney Roosters at all and I certainly don't have a problem with Joseph Suwali and I hope he has a really exciting, wonderful career. But as I understand it, the NRL has a rule in place that players are not to play NRL before the age of 18 years old. That is a... It's a black and white rule. There is absolutely no way to interpret around that rule and that rule was brought in for a reason. We talk about the physical demands of the game, but there are also mental demands of the game as well. And I think it's important that we recognise that young people potentially might not be ready for the step into NRL. In the Super League, they've got a similar rule, but it actually allows for some exemptions. What I don't like about this decision is I don't understand why the NRL have done it. And if they want flexibility in the future, just change the rules. I mean, over the summer, we saw a bunch of rule changes I don't know how they all came in. So the NRL clearly has the ability to change rules. So if you want flexibility around a player, simply change the rule. That's a, that's a pretty good way of putting it, Mary. I, I like that. <laughs> and, and to me, look, uh, as you said, that flexibility is probably the key to it because I think probably the, the, most people are reacting to it like, why? Why is there... I, I, you, I know you said 
you don't have anything against the roosters. But I bet there's a majority of people out there who have that perception that a rule was changed. Thanks, Joey. That there was... Yeah, that, exactly. What, exactly. What's our reaction in here? Do people think that the rule was changed for the roosters? Like, if it was the Bulldogs, would the rule have been changed? If he wasn't threatening to go to rugby, would the rule have been changed? If he wasn't the next big thing? And to be honest, just on that next big thing point, I, of course, want the best players playing rugby league, but I don't really worry about the talent we've got in our game. Like, if you look at the next generation of young players coming through, I don't think we've got a problem, and I don't think we need to worry about, oh, that guy's going to go off to rugby union. Sorry, 60s, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I, I was... What you were just saying to me then... Um, the thing that crosses my mind about that is, you know what I want? I want people playing our game who actually want to play our game. Not someone who is tossing up whether to play rugby union or rugby league based on the amount of money, the amount of money that's thrown their way. If someone wants to play rugby league, they're going to play rugby league if they get a, a reasonable sort of offer. And if they have to wait six months or 12 months to be an age that they can play, if they love the game, they're going to make it in our game. And if we're worried about someone that is maybe going to code hop at a young age, let them code hop. Tell you what, I'd be pretty cranky if I was the Newcastle Knights. So Bradman Best, they had to wait for him to turn 18 years old. So what is the process about it? Often people are looking for transparent, clear decisions. And I just don't think in this case it's been made. I mean, Andrew Abdo spoke this week and said, you know, this isn't an exemption that will be granted very much in the future. It's a, it's a special exemption. Well, what were the circumstances in which that exemption was granted? And additionally, like, we have a duty of care to these players. He's only a couple of months away. That's uh, back-to-back weeks. We've gotten the big soapbox out on the tip sheet. So, um, Joey, you want to come over here and drag that away for us, mate? Um, put the soapbox back around the corner and we'll... Um, We'll get it out next week as well. Joey's looking at us really confused now. He's not. He's uh, taking it as a literal soapbox out. I'm sorry, mate. I got on my soapbox. <laughs> Apparently we get the soapbox out on this show. Yeah. Did, 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 must have been Joey last uh, week, me we, this week. We, uh, we had to go up the other rules last week. So, yeah, we've, we've been um, rant, ranting and raving a little bit. Um, but moving on, uh, another thing that you've written about recently in regards to women in general in rugby league and as well something you advocate heavily for is the NRLW. And um, it's a topic that's come up a lot about expansion and um, not just expansion, but uh, developing the competition into a, a, a sort of bigger beast, as it were, rather than being a uh, single round robin. Um, how much do you want to see that competition expand in terms of teams, in terms of competition? And what's your timeline as someone that's heavily involved? So I think the first thing to make really clear is that I actually like the way that the NRL has gone about it because we want a strong, sustainable, marketable competition. And when the NRLW happens every year, everyone is left wanting more. There is no poor quality games and we absolutely love it. And that's the quality that I want to see. But we've been stagnant for the last couple of years and COVID obviously threw a spanner in the work. So I completely understand that. And there were many women that made pretty tremendous sacrifices last year to play in that competition. So if we think about the New Zealand Warriors women that are based in New Zealand, they did a two-week quarantine in Australia when they arrived played in a four-week competition and then went back to New Zealand and did a two-week quarantine there. So it's a lot to ask. This year, I think we need to see the teams play each other at least twice. I think we are at the point where we can do that. And then I'd also like to see an announcement this year about the next teams to be granted licences. And they don't necessarily need to join the competition next year. could be the year after that. 
but we, I know we, there we are. We want to see it happen. Yeah, we want to see it happen. And there are a number of teams that you know have sort of put their hands up. I know Parramatta are interested. I know the West Tigers are interested. Newcastle, Canberra, Gold Coast. So there are plenty of teams that are interested. Um, while actually we're doing the soapbox, I might just drag it out That's once again fair. since That's I've fair. got a willing audience. I just want to talk about one more thing in the women's game, and that's state of origin. Now, a lot of people have said we want more than one game. We want a three-week series. And to all of you, I say thank you because the women's game deserves it, and it's so awesome to see people so interested in it. But what I want to say is that the women's game has different considerations to the men's. So I'll talk you through it. When Boyd Cordner gets the call on a Sunday saying you're going into state of origin camp, He gets his time off from the Roosters, he packs his bag and goes off to camp. When Kezi Apps gets that same call, she needs to work out what she's going to do about work, how she's going to get the time off to be able to compete in State of Origin. So I just want everyone to keep that in mind when they're calling for a bigger series because these players have pretty significant demand put on them. And when we think about this year too, they're also hopefully going to be playing in a World Cup at the end of the year. So that's another four, five weeks at the end of the year that need to be accounted for. And these women are juggling lives, jobs and families. So to frame it this way, we love that everyone wants to see the tri-series for the state of origin for the girls, but we also need to start working through a process to make sure that they can financially account for themselves to do that. Absolutely. And I heard a question from the back as to why we don't have women playing before this game. It's a great question, and I think recently Parramatta have made some decisions about their game day experience, and I'm hopeful that what that means is potentially we start getting women's games before the NRL. And there was a point where touch football was happening before the main game, and and I love that, seeing the men and the women play. So I think it's a great point. Well, just... Thank you. Now, just to that, because you mentioned about the difficulties of having a a three-game origin series with the responsibilities that some of the uh, ladies have with their work commitments uh, because they're not full-time footballers outside of, um, outside of the game. They're, they're involved in their careers, their varied careers. So the question then is, the NRLW, with an expansion of the NRLW or an increase in the games, does that put a, a similar burden on them or is that something that we can work around? I think it does put a similar burden on them, but given that a lot of them are able to juggle work responsibilities during the week with training, and training is put at a time when the majority of players can attend, I think we can juggle it, but we need to make sure that we're growing the competition and at the same time paying these women what they deserve. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're putting them on million-dollar contracts, but we need to see them compensated for their time. Fair's fair, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Sixties uh, has got a game drawn up for us here, so you want to walk us through that one, mate? <laughs> You've got a game for Mary now that you're going to play in terms of a, a question for her. Just before we get to a game, I, 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 do want to, I do want to ask Mary, what do you think will be the ideal number in an NRLW competition? That's a hard question because I'm looking short-term... What I will say about that, I won't give you a number, but I will say that I don't think we need to mirror what the NRL has done. Mm -hmm. I think if we were looking at the NRL competition today, we would probably say maybe there are too many Sydney teams. I think given we're building the NRLW from the bottom up, we've got time to think about new markets potentially. Maybe a team in Perth, maybe another Queensland team, maybe teams, you know, from around the country and not so many Sydney teams. Mm -hmm. So... 
That's what I'll say. We've got yeah, an opportunity to think about it. I'm probably, I'm probably in that category of people that's impatient <laughs> with that because I look forward to the NRLW competition each year, but then because there's only the four teams, the grand final's often decided... Week one. Yeah, week one, literally. And, um, and I, I don't know that there's an answer beyond an expansion. Uh, I mean, they could play each other twice. The, and then you, the double round robin's the most yeah. obvious expansion of the competition. Yeah. That's the easiest step. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then the next question, just relating to that is, if there are more games played... Would you still rope? Uh, would you still have them um, at venue? Would you have them at venues before an NRL game, or would you have them as a standalone event? I think there's options to do both. That's what I think is exciting about it. A lot of people call for the women's state of origin to be put before the men's. I completely disagree with that. I don't know if whether any of you have been to state of origin, but no one actually goes to watch the earlier games. I mean, there's 16s, 18s, yeah. and 20s being played before then. The and no stadium one up. is yeah. absolutely bare, and our women deserve better than that. And for anyone that's been to North Sydney Oval for that women's state of origin match, it is absolutely rocking. Bumping. Like yeah. it really <laughs> is. I think the next step for that women's state of origin, I think we've actually outgrown North Sydney. So two years ago, when it was there, I think they ran out of drinks. Everyone had to, you know, wait hours to go to the bathroom. I actually think somewhere like Bank West is the next challenge. Let's fill Bank West for women's state of origin. I like it. I like Me it. Me too. Now, we've, we've just had some late news. Uh, Brett Kenny is going to be joining us within a couple of minutes. Ooh, I'll have to get so, off the stage. Uh, yeah, it, it looked like he was not going to be here till um, a little bit later and in our in our second stint, but uh, I've just been advised that he's uh, very close to arriving. So um, for anyone here who's um, here to see Brett Kenny, we'll, uh, we'll have him here shortly with us. So, um, yeah, um, please stick with us. And those of us who are listening live on the podcast, we, it did look as if it was going to be a bit later. It did look like it was going to be after 6.30, but it is going to be... Uh, very soon, so uh, stick with us yeah. uh, f- and stay on our live podcast. The joys of broadcasting live. Uh, this you is, roll yeah. for punches. <laughs> you, you can now tell that this is live. You can probably hear a bit of the hum in the background because Pablo's is uh, is is quite full at the moment, and um, uh, it, it's uh, a new experience for us going live with the uh, with the tip sheet. So, just to finish off, Mary, uh, if, if we had Christmas in March. And you were able to give some presents to players right now. And this is, this is going to put you on the spot. If I name a player, what gift you would particular, what Christmas gift you would give him right now? Okay. okay. All right. And then maybe at the end I can pick a player that I want to give a gift to? Yeah. Sure. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm going to start off with Gutho, King Gutho. <laughs> what, would you, what would you provide for King Gutho? Isn't the answer to all of them more tries? Like tries for tonight? <laughs> like bad. many, many, many tries for tonight? Um, plenty of Gutharinos for Gutho tonight because when he does a Gutharino, he's happy and I want to see him happy out there tonight. I was thinking something in the way of hair product for oh, Gutho. Oh, like a, a, a physical gift. Yeah, oh. a physical... Well, I mean, it can, be, it can be a physical gift. It could be a, it could be a wish for something to happen. Okay, so I, I'm, okay. I'm going with some sort of hair product for Gutho. Maybe... 
Uh, I, I've seen there's some great scrunchies that are available. People get people get uh, scrunchies made to order. So, you know, maybe a blue and gold scrunchie. I have one, a second one. I'm not wearing it tonight. I forgot to, but that's a good idea. Um, he also really loves his dogs, so maybe we could get him a photo shoot for him and his dogs, or is that a bit weird? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, if, you, if you own a dog, nothing's too weird, I think. You, you love those yeah. little things, so... Okay, Mitch Moses. Ooh. Wow, that's a toughie. Mitch Moses. What am I giving to Mitch Moses as a gift? Have you got any ideas? I don't know. For Guffo, I was going to say maybe slow the game down a little bit because when the fittest player in the competition is complaining that it's too fast. <laughs> but um, for Mitch, I don't know. I'd like to give him a week or two free of being harassed by the media and supporters. I, I think, think that's a great idea. I... I I honest, honestly, I, I know that you get paid the big bucks to be playing halfback, but I reckon there's probably very few halfbacks as, that cop as much stick as what Mitch Moses does, even if he has a decent game. So, um, yeah, I give him a week, a week or two free from media or fan scrutiny. I think that's a really good one. Okay. Um, Cash Marnie. Reed Marnie. Reed's perfect, isn't he? He doesn't need any more gifts after his performance last weekend. I, I, I was thinking maybe like a new pillow or something like that because the number of minutes <laughs> that, he's, that he's playing lately, I, I reckon he could good, do with a good sleep. Or a massage maybe. Oh, uh, I'm not like going a, there. Not you, no. but like a voucher for him to go away to I one mean, of those resorts. I not there's anything wrong with that, but no, I'm not giving <laughs> Reed a massage. I didn't know. Yeah, okay. Let's move on. Maybe a little love to his ears as well. The poor bloke's got uh, the old cauliflower ears going like he's a rugby union lock. So I also want to give Blake Ferguson a gift. I want him to score lots of tries tonight. I know he had some trouble finding the try line last year. He found it last weekend, and I just want him to keep building his confidence. That's it. Okay, now what about BA? <laughs> a premiership. Come on. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I, I actually feel sorry for BA. Anytime I've been to uh, training and the players have been responsible for the soundtrack that gets pumped over the PA system, some of what is uh, passes as, as music. Uh, no, okay, I'm old kids man. These I'm days, go, kids I'm getting, these days. Kids these days. Old man yells at Cloud. I'm going to yell at Cloud about music. <laughs> so, uh, Mary, final word about tonight. What's your, what's your thoughts? How are we going to do it? Who's going to score first for the Eels? I don't like playing these games, gentlemen. I said that I was superstitious. The hearts gone. I've got my fingers and my toes crossed. I just want to see Parramatta compete. I mean, last year, I remember when we played the Roosters, I thought that was a really big test for us. And even though we lost the game, I was still really impressed with the effort that we put in. So that's what I want to see from them tonight. No injuries. And I also want to say to you both, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. And also on behalf of all Parramatta fans, thank you for the incredible work that you do. We are all one-eyed, lunatic Parramatta supporters. And to see that how much <laughs> time you, you devote to it and the energy at which you go with it is remarkable and we all love you for it. So thank you. Thanks, Mary. Oh, thanks, Mary. And can we have a round of applause for Mary Kay? From Lady Suli. Go para. Bringing a bit of class to the Cumberland throw. <laughs> more, more than a bit, I think. <laughs> Alrighty. So we are waiting for, for Brett to come still. So we're going to run through the Parramatta team ahead of kick. Hey, you're getting a bit rowdy out there. 
Um, we'll run through the Parramatta team uh, quickly as we uh, count towards kickoff. Yeah, okay. Okay, so captain of the team from fullback as always is Clinton Gufferson. On the flanks, you've got Mike Asiva on the number two and Blake Ferguson in the number five. Uh, new recruit Tom Opacic is in left centre. Uh, there was some late mail, I believe, wasn't there? Uh, we had Brent Reid talking about uh, Wonga Blake potentially being out for this game. Yeah, I think I, I don't know if anything's been confirmed around the um, the starting side as yet. Uh, so we'll, we'll have um, some hopefully get some late mail on that. But at this point in time, it looks like Wonga Blake might be out for tonight. Um, there is Hayes Dunster inside the 19 still, so he's a potential uh, uh, target to come into the back line. But um, outside of whoever plays at right centre will be Blake Ferguson, as I mentioned. In the halves, you've got Dylan Brown and Mitchell Moses. The all-star front row of Reagan Campbell-Gillard, Reid Marnie and Junior Paulo will be controlling the middle for the Eels. And in the back row, you've got Sean Lane, Ryan Madison and Nathan Brown at lock. Uh, the bench reads as Oregon Kafusi, Isaiah Papali'i, who was outstanding against the Broncos last week, alongside Will Smith and Murata Niakore, who's back from suspension. He's a massive inclusion for the Eels, and he's the one uh, change on Teamless Tuesday that we had prior to the news about Wonga Blake. Uh, the extended roster is uh, Keegan Hipgrave and Hayes Dunster is the 18th and 19th man, respectively. 60s. Uh, what do we think is going to happen tonight? Um, we, we, we spoke about it with Mary. We know it's going to be a tough game. Uh, we spoke about it with Joey as far as a kicking game. Is there anywhere else that you think the Eels can win or at least negate the influence of the Storm in some capacity? Well, I, I am actually advocating for a more conservative game from us tonight. I, I, I'd like to think that, especially in the first half, that we go about winning the middle and then, look, just getting those completions right. Where, where the football is all about completions, getting into good field position, applying the pressure, being patient. So for me, what I'm looking for tonight is, is maybe not so much that I'm targeting anyone in the Melbourne Storm, although, uh, you know, we, are, we did talk about the, the side that the, uh, that the uh, Rabbitohs exploited last week, but... Melbourne just do things so well. You can bet that whatever issues they had against the Rabbitohs last week, they would have been working on and working on and working on all week. So I'm expecting that what we need to do is to uh, play a good um, basic rugby league with the middle, apply pressure, force line dropouts, uh, good kicking game, and uh, before we even think about getting too expansive. Now, these two teams met twice in 2020. The Parramatta Eels took the Bickies in the first occasion, 14-0 at Bankwest itself. And then in the finals, unfortunately, the Parramatta Eels dropped the game 36-24, which hurt a lot. But uh, do you think that they can take uh, a lot of the lessons we learned from those two games? Well, I think we learned last year that when we played tight, which was what we basically did in that, in that game at home at Bankwest Stadium, that was a really tight game. The Storm had a lot of players out, but Parramatta basically were looking to grind out a win that night. They knew that they had a full-strength or close to a full-strength team against a team that was badly weakened, but they just went about winning the basics. Now, when we played in that semi-final, there was a real urgency to get early points, and we delivered those early points. The only problem being that once some unfortunate injuries occurred during the game, it was hard to come back from that. Mm -hmm. And that really completely disjointed the team. Um, Luz and Micah Sivo, 
and then we had Andy Davy, uh, sorry, Murata came on to fill in at centre. Correct. Then he got injured. Yep. Then Andrew Davy was forced to play centre. Then Fergo got hurt. And then we had um, later on Blake Ferguson getting injured. That's when you when you're looking at forwards on the bench and you lose backs during a game. It's it's a lot of the game plan is surely put uh, you know it, it goes astray. Now, he was a blog favourite for a long time before his breakout year in 2020, but how big of an inclusion is Murata Niakori this week for the bench? Oh, sorry, 60s is unfortunately otherwise occupied at the moment. So, yeah, speaking on Murata, I think you know, he sort of elevated himself as one of the premier bench players in the NRL in 2020, and that role was something we've spoken about being so important to not just Parramatta's success, but success across the NRL in general. Uh, where do you think Murata stands as a bench forward now? He's a middle forward, absolutely a middle forward. Now, mate, just just on that, and this is the beauty of um, of live performances or, or live appearances. Um, what we're going to do, we uh, Brett Kenny's yet to arrive, but um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a break. Okay. Uh, we're going to put you in the hands of Oscar Kami, who's uh, who's. Who's going to entertain us until Brett Kenny arrives? When Brett Kenny arrives, we'll come back for a, a quick chat. Bit of an interchange rotation going yeah. on here. Yeah. So, uh, Oscar, if we can throw it over to you, and uh, thank you for your patience in uh, in what happens with with live events and things being thrown on us at the last minute. So, uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll be back as soon as Brett Kenny uh, arrives in the in the building. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pablo's, and we are privileged to have the great, the legendary Brett Kenny joining us live. Everyone, Brett Kenny. Now, mate, being here at uh, Parramatta Leagues Club, this would bring back memories for you, because I think from recollection, you worked here as a cellarman many, many years ago. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, 1981, I started in the cellar and um, walking across from the, the stadium, I, I looked over where the cellar is and you can't get through there now. You know, we used to have all the trucks through the deliveries there. And, but I had some great times and um, had a lot of fun. Uh, I remember, I think it was the 81 grand final, we, um, the week leading into that game, I, I came out, someone had had a broken leg or something and had some crutches, so I borrowed the crutches and started walking around the lounge and the, and the fl- uh, on the bottom floor and, and uh, everyone started to question me what was going on. I said, oh, I think I've done my foot, I can't run and, you know, I might be out and that was it. So I had a bit of fun there. It was great. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, act- I actually worked here myself in 80 and 81 and there was, always seemed there was a few Parramatta players that were on the roster. And I, I do have to ask you one question. It wasn't unusual for me to see Peter Sterling's name down on the same shift as me, and I used to think to myself, I'm going to get to work with Sterlow this week. I- I'm going to tell you, I never worked one shift with him. No, it's amazing. He um, always managed to have his name on the roster but never seemed to turn up. <laughs> and um, I think it was the same. when he. I remember when he started working at TWS and used to do the sports report and he, they, we ended up finding out they used to ring him he was at home <laughs> he, he missed, missed the, um, the alarm he was at home they rang him so he used to do the sports report over the phone see he was actually probably you know they used to say he was several plays ahead of himself but in fact he was decades ahead of the work from home <laughs> philosophy 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, Brett, your renown in NRL or rugby league as it was back then is as a 5'8", and one of the greatest of all time. But what positions, if any, did you play as a young kid uh, outside of 5'8", sorry? Well, basically, when I was a young bloke, I started as a 5'8", and then as I got older and became a teenager, I ended up playing in the centres. And that was probably basically it for me. I was a centre when I got graded at Parramatta, and... Um, yeah, from there I, I played in the centres in 1980 outside Mick Cronin and then in 81 when Jack Gibson arrived, I think sort of midway through the year he put me in this 5'8 and I used to shot, uh, swap around with, with Steve Eller and myself and Steve Eller would play 5'8. It was a case of whenever a scrum went down, whoever was closest to the scrum would slip into 5'8 and the other bloke would play in the centres. So, uh, and then later on I sort of became a permanent 5'8. So... Yeah, probably 5'8 and centre were probably the two main positions I played as a kid. Well, I actually have some stats on that. So you spent 163 games at 5'8, 79 in the centre. And you mentioned about during uh, Gibbo's years that that, that, was, that was a fairly even sort of split during that between 5'8 and centre. Did he actually like to alternate you and Zip, or was it a case of what you just said where whoever was closest to the scrum would go in at 5'8"? Yeah, it was basically that, whoever was closest, and, and Jack didn't have a problem with it. I, I guess he looked at the, the situation and thought, well, both of us could play the, the position. There wasn't, he wasn't going to lose anything by having either one of us there, so that was the way we, we played it. I guess the problem might have been for Mick Cranon. Every time he, he'd look outside of him, he'd, he'd have a different guy there, but... But, um, yeah, that was the way we played, and it, it seemed to work. We, we won four premierships. <laughs> Not a bad result, isn't it? So you didn't have a really particular high preference between centre and 5'8", when all was said and done. It's just to get the ball into your hands and... You know. Well, I, I always preferred to play 5'8", only because I was closer to the play. Makes sense. Um, I, I felt that when I was playing in the centres, I was out a bit wider, I wasn't close to the play, and I used to get a bit bored, I guess. I, I was never a guy to... To go looking for the ball, I used to stay, always kept my positional play. That was very important to me. So, um, But, yeah, being at a 5'8 was more of a case of closer to the play. Got my hands on the ball a lot more, so I enjoyed it. Now, I'd like to cast your mind back to a game in 1983 against North Sydney. It was at North Sydney Oval. Uh, and in that game, you played fullback. And it was in the wet. And Jack Gibson moved you out of that position in the second half and he said, and I, I was thinking about this today because we've got a wet day today, uh, but he said something along the lines of, as Gibson can, that you, he moved you because you were busy dodging the raindrops at fullback. Do you, do you recall that comment from Gibbo? Oh, look, I, I, I'm struggling to remember what happened two weeks ago, let alone what <laughs> happened back in 1983, but it wouldn't surprise me and... and um, I guess when he, if he had said that, he, I probably didn't do too much at fullback. I was probably not <laughs> running around or, or joining into the back line. So, um, yeah, I, and I guess that was, was probably the last time I played fullback too, yeah, I think. I, 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 think, think, it, I think you are listed as one, yeah. one, one game at fullback. Would that, something like that have been regarded as a Gibbo spray? Is that, is that about as tough as he would get or could he get, um, you know, very direct and to the point? Well, I, I guess it was probably probably as, as tough as he would get. I, I, I think if, if he wasn't real happy with the way you were doing anything, he wouldn't tell anyone else. Yeah. He wouldn't say something like that. He would actually speak to you personally and, 
and that. So, I mean, it's the same as whenever he dropped anyone. Um, you're always called into Jack's office and, and uh, t- ex- he would explain as to why you've been dropped and, and you'd know well before the team was announced for the following weekend. So I was very fortunate that I never... I would probably, technically, I might have been dropped, but I always believe I, I was never dropped to rested. reserve grade. Well, could have been rested, yes. Yeah. So I got, I got arrived at training and uh, would have been 1982... Oh, sorry, 1983. When I went to Kangaroo Tour in 82. So when I came back, I just went straight back into training, never had a rest. So I was obviously tired midway through the season. And I had, I got out of the car at Granville Park where we were training and, and someone came up and said, Jack wants to see you in his office. So I've gone weak at the knees, you know. You don't <laughs> want to see Jack in his office. And so off I've gone and I sat down and he said, look, I'm going to give you a rest, I'm not going to play you this week. And I said, well, Jack, I haven't missed a game in two years. He said, well, that's fine. He said, if you want to play, you can play reserve grade. <laughs> and I said, well, no, OK. He said, right, we'll have a rest. He said, grab your bag, go and get in your car, go home. I don't want to see you until next Tuesday. So give me the whole week off. And, and I guess that he realised that I was tired. I'd had too much football. And, and the same thing happened to me in 87, after the Kangaroo Tour in 86, you know, with, and it was, he's the type of guy that sort of knows that. He knows so much about his players, and that was one of the, the good things about Jack. Yeah, for all the things that he's known as, as for a master coach, I guess it is that knowing the players that made him who he was. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, when I finished playing football, I went into a bit of coaching, and, and I coached at Penrith, and I was actually quite surprised that up there, the first-grade coach never told the guys why they were dropped. He just said, you're not playing first grade, you're back in reserve grade. And never told them why. And, and Jack would do that. He would always tell you why. And, and he, was, he knew, he could tell you who the kid was that was sitting on the bench in the under-23s. I'd have no idea who the kid was sitting on the bench in the under-23s. We used to train in, in coloured teams and, and we'd have guys from first grade, reserve grade, under-23s. But you'd virtually know those guys that's in your colour team. But the other guys, you wouldn't know necessarily because you didn't see them in that. But Jack was there every week watching them. He could tell you who the guy was on the bench and, and that was the thing about him. He, he took interest in every player and I think that's how he gained, he gained a lot of respect from players. And I always say to people, you know, there could be a brick wall there. If he said run through it, we knew we probably couldn't, but we'd give it a shot. Yeah. Now... This is something I think about a lot, Brett, um, and it, it pops into my mind quite often. The 81 to 86 Eels are one of rugby league's greatest dynasties, um, and yet barely any of them, if any, seem to come into conversation as an immortal. All that talk now seems to be centred around recently retired players. You're talking John from Thurston, and now Cameron Smith is retired. Um, for Parramatta supporters, the men from those teams are always going to be immortals. But from your perspective, why do you think you guys don't feature in that sort of conversation you know, as an all, like, obviously you are all timers and all famers, but for some reason you don't get much consideration as a mortals. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it, I guess it's probably hard to understand. It, people talk about current players now. They're already talking about possibly changing the rules to allow Cameron Smith to be in. I just can't see that happening. You know, everyone else has had to wait five years from the time they retired or longer. To be named an immortal, so I really can't see why they should start changing it now. And but I, yeah, I, I, it is a bit 
hard to understand that, you know, a lot of guys from Parramatta don't sort of get mentioned. And um, I look at myself, for example, there are two immortals now in Mal Meninga and Wally Lewis, and I replaced them in, in uh, mm-hmm. and two kangaroo tours. I was replaced Wally in the 1982 tour. Uh, I, I played 5'8", Wally was on the bench. 1986, I replaced Mal Meninga in the centres. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I look at it that way. That's a good thing that these two guys are immortals because I can say, well, I'm the only player that's ever <laughs> knocked them out of their position. That, that is a very good out- outlook on that, Mark. Okay, this next question is probably not a question that many people who've played for the Eels can answer. Which premiership is your favourite? Oh, well, I guess... I guess I'd have to say 1981, and then a close second would be 1986 for two totally different reasons. But 1981 was the first grand final I'd ever played in. I never, I was never fortunate enough to play in a grand final as a kid. So yeah, it was it was great to play your first grand final as a as a first grade uh, grand final. To win that was, I and mean, obviously being the first grand final that Parramatta had won, it was something very special. Um, 1986 was a special grand final because of Ray Price and Mick Cranor were both retiring at the end of that grand final and it was, it was great to be able to send them out with a victory. So, but out of the two, I guess I'd, have to, I'd say 1981. Just on that, that 86 grand final, uh, there's been the documentary that Adam Hawes uh, put together recently and um, one of the things that came through was how tight the team was. Um, uh, is that a, a big part of the recipe for success, to have a, a really tight-knit team? Yeah, look, I, I think it is. I, I've been saying that for quite a while now, that I believe the reason we were so successful was because we were so tight. We we had, um, you know, a lot of... We were like brothers, you know, and, I mean, Ray Price played a big part in that. Um, I think from the time... From probably 1981 through till he retired in, 90, in 1986, every time we had a New Year's Eve party, it was his place, and all the players were there and their wives and girlfriends. So um, yeah, we we stuck together a lot. We used to go out a lot um, as young folks, and and I, I think you know that was probably the the recipe for success for us because we we were like brothers and we stuck up for each other and looked out for each other. I, look, I have to say, I'm, I'm also glad that you mentioned 81, and I'm going to say this just before I have a, a, a sip of the Jack's Pale Ale. Um, I was at the game. I came back to the club afterwards. I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to be in this club after we won the grand final for the first time. I, I know I didn't buy a drink all night. Uh, I was walking around with a glass, and it just seemed to get filled up. As I was walking around, um, there's some memories that are a little bit hazy, but man, that was. I can only imagine the people here who are not of the age that would have attended back in '81. I can only imagine that they're going to go through something similar when we do win again. Well, we certainly hope so. You know, I remember coming back to the to the Leeds club, and we came back by bus, and we we actually got as far as Church Street. We were on Victoria Road and we had to stop just as we got across Church Street. We couldn't go any further because of all the people. Um, 
we finally got back to the club. We had to get out of the bus and get on top of a uh, tabletop truck, Hardy's tabletop truck, because they didn't, couldn't fit anyone else in the club. So a lot of people outside, so they wanted us to get up on the, on the truck so people could see us and, and shake hands and everything. And once that was done, we then had to get on the, the bouncer's shoulders and actually get carried into the club. <laughs> I think the Bears told us about <laughs> being carried into the club. I mean, that, that would have been a sight, the Bear being lifted well, up and carried Well, I mean, in. the guys deserve double their money if they could have carried <laughs> him in. But, I mean, it was just that, that way it was. It was in the club. We, we went upstairs to a restaurant. We were eating, and, and we could actually see the ceiling of the restaurant bouncing because uh, of the people that were up in the auditorium. And we finally went up to the auditorium, and you could not see the floor. There was that many people there. And I actually saw a young girl faint. And she just went back on people. No one had realised she'd fainted because they were jammed in that tight. It was just an amazing night. And it was probably 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning before the players could actually sit down together and have a drink and just talk about what we'd actually achieved. Now, this one might be a tricky question, mate, because you have one of the longer and highly decorated careers in rugby league. But can you single out a game for us which you would regard as your single greatest individual performance? Geez, I'd like to say there's been that many of them. I but can't that, remember. There has been that um, many of them, mate. Look, I, I guess probably just quickly, probably a game that wasn't played in Australia, it was played in England. It was a Challenge Cup final in 1985. Probably look at that and regard that as probably one of my best, better performances. Oh, that's a good one. 60s, what do you got, mate? Um, yeah, just on now um, to today's game. Would you have enjoyed being a football, uh, full-time footballer in today's game? I'm really not sure. I mean, when we, when we played, we were semi-professional and we always thought it would be great to be a professional footballer. But then when you look at what goes on nowadays, I'm really not sure that, that I would enjoy... I don't think I'd enjoy the game. I, I, I look at the game now, I don't enjoy what I see. I think they've got too many rules in the game now. Um, I heard the other day someone mentioned to me there was something like 15 new rules introduced into the game. In the last two years, it'd be about that, yeah. In the last two years, but they haven't taken any rules out. So how the hell is a referee... And I... Look, I'm not a big fan of referees, but I feel sorry for a referee. It's a tough How the hell is the referee going to remember all these rules on any given day and... I also asked, I asked a lot of mates one day, I said, did anyone ever see a, a 20-40 kick last year? And they said, a what? I yeah. said, a 20-40. Yeah. And they said, no, it's a 40-20. I said, no, there was a rule brought in, you can kick a 20-40 mm-hmm. and you get the ball back. Yeah. Even the players can't remember. No, that's right. So no. that's how bad it's getting. They're bringing that many rules in. It's just people can't keep up with it and they want... I remember it was only a few years ago when they had the interchange, they were talking about dropping the number of interchange so that the players would get tired and the game would slow down a bit. Now they're talking about making it quicker. And I just think that you're going to see a lot of drop ball because players are going to get tired, they're not going to concentrate. So therefore, you know, there will be a lot of drop balls and the game will become an absolute mess until such time as they decide to, to go back and... Listen to what the players have got to say. Like, this is what amazes me. They don't seem to talk to the people that play the game. 
but they want to tell them this is what you've got to do. And they say, we can't, they, they're saying, we can't do this. It's too fast. So why not listen to the players? And they say, okay, well, what do we have to do? I just, to me, and I, and I don't know, but I'm taking a guess at a lot of TV executives, they've got a lot to do with the way the games are going. They're putting their mind and saying, this is what the people want. And saying, well, maybe they don't. But if they do, talk to the players. They're the ones that have got to do this. And if they're saying that it's too hard, change it. I'm, the, the rule that I'm really upset with is the play the ball restart from the ball going into touch. Because I'm going to challenge anyone to find one occasion this year where a try is scored off the play the ball from the ball going into touch as compared to a try being scored off uh, a scrum. Well, I look at it that way too. You know, I think it was a lot better when there was a scrum. I think it was a lot better for the forwards. They got a little bit of a break, a little bit of a breather, but also from a back's point of view, there's more opportunity to create something. Not that they necessarily did that, but you think you've got five on five you've got the ball, you can create some sort of play, do something where you might be able to come up with a try. When it's a play the ball, you've got 13 on 13. It, it's, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. You know? and, and I think I, I, I read where some of the forwards were saying, you know, they couldn't believe it that the ball would get kicked into touch. They'd run back, they'd turn around, and the Blake's got to hit the ball up. They didn't get an opportunity to have a breather. Now, just into our last couple of questions now. Um, and I'm going to continue on with that hypothetical about your playing in the game today, right? What would be different for you? Like, would it be the position you play, your playing weight? Uh, what, what do you think individually would be different for you in this game if you were playing today? Well, I think my playing weight would be one of the big changes because I, I would be doing the same sort of training they're doing. Um, I'd probably be a lot stronger because of the weights and a lot bigger because of the weights um, and I, th I think that would be the major change whether or not would, would have helped the way I played I don't know but because you when you played you were at a very similar size and weight to Bevan French like when Bevan French like he, what he was listed at his, as his playing weight and height is virtually identical to yours and yet he was regarded as being a light almost yeah. too light for the game well that's right I played the heaviest I played at was about 86, 87 kilos. Well, you know, nowadays, it, your halfbacks could be that heavy. Yeah. You know, and, and the, but that, that probably would have been the, the, big, the big difference for me, would have been my weight and my size. I would have probably been muscular because of the weights and obviously would have been a little bit heavier. Um, I, I, I guess I probably, having known what I know and having played before, I probably wouldn't like the way I'd have to play as a 5'8 today. Um, I much preferred to play and be able to go from one side to the other, go wherever I wanted to. The halfback would generally control the play and then I would look after the backs. That wouldn't happen in today's game. But I guess, like anything, if you've never experienced any other way of playing, you probably think today's game's great. You know? but I, I just think that... That would be the biggest thing, would be the weight and the, and the strength and that that I would have. Do you, do you think you'd be maybe a fullback? Sorry? Maybe a fullback, being able to play both sides of the park? At, if you were playing today as a prime... Well, if I was game? playing, yeah, if I was playing today, obviously 
I, if I was playing 5-8, I, I would be on the left or right side, and that's where I'd stay. And, you know, back in our day, we were allowed to go around from right. one side yeah. to the other, make an extra man. And I, I don't know how many times I've seen in games where you think you've only... They're just locked, in, they're locked, in, locked into both sides, but yeah. just get out there and yeah. there's an but opportunity to me, there. To yeah. me, at the moment, we, we used to play, we had a structure. People would think we didn't have a structure, but we had a structure. Today's structures are just so... They're too structured. And I, I firmly believe that there's a lot of players running around in the NRL that have got a lot more natural ability than what we see because they're not allowed to do what comes natural to them. And you'll, there's probably guys that could chip over the top, regather, do that perfectly well, but they're told we can't do that because on tackle three, we've got to be there. The, the on tackle four, we've got to be there. To and if you've got yeah. the ball and you think you can do, you don't do that. Yeah, but there is one uh, brilliant exponent of that in the Parramatta Reels team, it's Junior Paulo. Now, Junior doesn't mind throwing that in a training, but I think BA would have a heart attack if Junior <laughs> threw in a chip chase in a game. <laughs> well, he, he probably would, but then again, when you look at it, I, my view is if he puts it in and they score, I'd be happy. Yeah, true. Yeah. That, I true. would say to him, no, that'll never happen again. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think you've got to look at players, and that was one of the things we learned from Jack Gibson, that Jack always looked at players and he said, you know what, you never coach him in the things he can do well, but you coach him in the things he can't do well. And, that, and one of the other problems he, he found with coaches was they overcoach. Try and tell guys you've got to do too much and they can't necessarily do what they want. So you look at players and if someone like Junior Paulo, if, if he can chip over the top and regather or, or he can chip over for someone else and he does it well, I'd be happy to say, mate, if you think the opportunity's there, do it. Yeah. Because the way the game is nowadays, the opposition would never expect that. They would always think front row, hit the ball up, hit the ball up, get an offload every now and then. If you've got someone that can do that, well, you'd, you'd let them do it. you throw it in. All righty, it's the go-home question now, Brett. But um, you also spent some time as a coach, not just a player. So looking at tonight's game and putting on a coach's hat, what do you think Parramatta need to do to beat the Melbourne Storm? To beat the Melbourne Storm? Look, I, I just think we've got, to, we've got to control up the middle. And, you know, we've got to control them. They've got a very good forward pack. They've got some good backs. But I think if we can control the middle of the ruck, and we can keep going forward. And that was the biggest problem, I think, last week was, well, two things. I agree with what Brad Arthur said was, I don't think the players respected the opposition. I think last week they went in there thinking, well, we're playing the wooden spooners, we finished third, this will be an easy game. They realised by half-time it's not an easy game. I think tonight, because of who they're playing, they will be a lot better, they'll have a lot more respect, but they need to control the middle of the ruck. We need to be going forward. and. People say the game's changed. Well, the basics are the same. And we saw last week, Parramatta tried to go around, spread the ball wide early, couldn't do anything. They were 16-0 down at halftime. Suddenly they thought, yes, we'll go forward, which is what it used to be. Forwards go forward. You dominate up the middle of the ruck. Yeah, the backs score all the tries. Today's game, the wingers do the fancy dives and score. But <laughs> it's the forwards that win you the game. And, and that's what they did in the second half. And they've got to do the same thing tonight. The kicking game's got to be outstanding and they've just got to make sure they don't try and throw passes around when, they, when it's not on. It's just have a good, good kicking game, control the middle of the ruck. That might help. That might help get them through the win. Well, Brett, it's been an absolute honour for us to have you 
uh, join the Cumberland Throw with our uh, podcast tonight. And uh, everyone, if you could uh, round of applause for the great Brett Kenny. Thank you. Thanks, mate.